Welcome to Unstyled. I'm your host, Christine Barbrick, co-founder and global editor-in-chief of Refinery29. Each week, I invite a notable person to come in and talk with us as we explore the funny, inspiring, sometimes heartbreaking tales of life, work, and love, as told through the things that we wear. Molly Ringwald. Hear that name and instantly the image comes to mind. The red bob, signature pout, and a heartsick gaze that came to define an entire era of teenage angst. Indeed, for many years, Molly Ringwald was the very definition of the American teenager and teen starlet. But then she did the unthinkable. She grew up. Molly Ringwald left Hollywood in her early 20s, fully aware of her legacy as a permanent adolescent in the minds of millions. Unlike the many other child stars who followed in her legendary path, she didn't stick around and wait to be edged out of the business once she aged beyond her high school roles. She dropped her past and image entirely, moved to Paris, and dyed her iconic hair. Only then could Molly's own coming-of-age story finally begin. She acted in French films and occasionally returned to the U.S. for work. But mostly she took the time she needed, the time she never had as one of the most successful and iconic teenage actors ever. Molly is now the mother of a teenager herself, and even more conscious of her image and its power. Last year, she published a widely acclaimed essay in The New Yorker, revisiting one of her most recognizable films, The Breakfast Club, reflecting on the time she spent watching the cult classic with her daughter. In retrospect, it struck a deep chord to see her young self objectified and fondled on screen. It shook her, too, to re-watch Sixteen Candles with its drunken, exploitative rape humor, played for big laughs. While Molly still sees the good in the early work that came to define a generation of youth-related films, she recognizes its flaws, too. Rather than shy away from these issues, she's made it her business to point them out publicly. It's her legacy, too, after all. These days, Molly is enjoying this new stage and the multifaceted life she's created. She's a writer, a jazz singer, a mother of three, a working actor, and still a living legend. It's not always easy inhabiting so many roles at once. Of course, Molly isn't anywhere near done evolving. She'll always somehow be a symbol of youth. But what Molly Ringwald has really taught us is how to grow up and to know that what's to come is just as iconic. Molly Ringwald. I can't even believe I'm saying that. Molly Ringwald, it is such a pleasure and an honor to have you on Unstyled today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Let's talk a little bit about the New Yorker article that you wrote in 2018. And you wrote it reflecting back on the movies that you really made famous and this sort of genre of film during the 80s and in the face of the Me Too movement. Why did you want to write the essay? And like, had you been thinking about it for a long time? I was actually thinking about it for a long time. I have three kids, and my eldest is now almost 16 years old. And I had shown her The Breakfast Club, which was kind of a big deal for me. And It was a big deal for all of us, just so you know. <laughs> well, it was, of the three John Hughes movies I did, it, it had always been my favorite. And so I was really kind of nervous about showing it to her, but mostly just because I was worried that she wouldn't like it. <laughs> you know, like we sort of made this date together and watched the movie. And 
I wasn't really focused on what was super inappropriate in the movie. She was really young. Like the whole sexual conversation wasn't really exactly on the horizon yet because she was only, I guess, 10 years old. And so we kind of glossed over those elements of the movie and we kind of talked about the things that were more relevant to her and her experience. But it kind of planted the seed in my head and I just kept thinking about it and it it just bothered me. But at the same time, those movies are so important to me and also I'm cognizant of how important they are to other people, you know. So many other people. (laughs) It's just very complicated and complex. So usually when I don't know exactly how I feel about something or how to express how I feel, I realize that that's something that I need to write about. I honestly felt like it was the root of a book because there is so many parallels about it, especially the fact that your daughter's a teenager now. And everyone, I mean, all of my peers, we look to you, you are like everything to us. I mean, we'll get to the fashion part later, but I remember hearing you with your daughter and she was like so protective of you and she cried. Remember when she cried a little bit and you were so surprised and I felt a little actually weird even listening to it because it felt like such a private moment between you and your daughter and you kind of took her off to the side a little bit and you could hear that you were talking to her and comforting her. It really struck a chord with me like how this sort of reckoning with these films and the role that they played in your life and the role that you played in so many people's lives and that impact that it has and those storylines on your daughter in that moment was just so intimate and so moving. That was actually when I showed her The Breakfast Club. I recorded it and did a piece for This American Life. And that's what was so interesting, actually. I I almost ended up not doing the piece because of that moment. It ended up being, I think, a beautiful story, and it was handled really so sensitively. Like I said, we didn't really talk about the sexual stuff, but the reason why she cried was because when I asked her which character she related to, she told me Brian, which completely threw me. Brian is the really good student who is under an incredible amount of pressure, and I didn't realize how much pressure she was feeling in school. She wasn't able to communicate that to me, but she was able to communicate it as a result of seeing this movie. So our relationship changed as a result of watching a movie that I made how many years ago, which makes me still really love those movies because I feel like it does get kids talking. And I think the overriding message is that what kids have to say is important and we need to listen. But like anything else. They're imperfect. Yeah, of course. I mean, aren't we all? (laughs) Other aspects of this New Yorker piece, which came out more than a year ago, and it's important to kind of unpack it because there's a lot in here that I think is really special and important and so relevant to where we are right now, too, especially as we're moving into another election year. But one of the things that you did, and I don't know if you did it in preparation to write this essay, was you really went back into some archives from the National Lampoon humor pieces that the late John Hughes had written. I obviously didn't know them until I read your essay, and I was really upset and appalled. There was a specific subversion to a lot of it that just seemed very misogynistic and very sexist. It wasn't just generational. It was something more than that that seemed almost like trying to put women in very compromising positions and making them the butt of jokes. But I also see your point 
when you talk about the complexity of being who you are and having the history that you did with him mm-hmm. and in cinema history, film history, and just how confusing that was for you, you know, to be someone that admired him so much. And also you were his muse in so many ways. Yeah, he was a complicated guy. <laughs> I mean, I think it's one of the reasons why he made interesting, complicated films. But it was on top of that, I can't discount the fact that it was generational. Everything in National Lampoon and, you know, Mad Magazine and all of the humor pieces back then. It wasn't just women who were the butt of jokes. It was all different kinds of races or any kind of gender complexity, you know, gay. They were all the butt of jokes. The people that were powerful at the time, basically white male that that was would be comics. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And they were the ones that had the power. And that was the time. I mean, now it's beginning to change. But I think that that's been the status quo. I mean, frankly, I don't feel like it's changing as much as I would like it to. I've been very hopeful and optimistic. But when I see the things that Hollywood is turning out, I feel like the needle should have moved a little further than it has. Well, I mean, I think when you look at writers like Mindy Kaling and Tina Fey and Amy Schumer, Issa Rae, I think that there is space, obviously, for women with really bold voices. Mm -hmm. But I agree with you. I think that when you think about how many hangovers do we need to see, you know what I mean? And it's like the best that we can do is to respond to it with like bad moms. Yeah, that really bothers me. It's like I feel... So often that women are expected to compete by doing the same thing. Like, look how gross and crude women can be. See, we can be gross, too. (laughs) And it's like really not playing to our strengths. I really hate it when people compliment female writers and say, oh, they really write like a man. No, they don't write like a man and they shouldn't have to write like men they should write like women and that should be okay yeah and so I think that those attitudes are still evolving and and still changing so what was the response when you wrote the essay I mean I know that I started seeing you written about and I saw you a lot more than I had before I don't really get into the comments, especially, because if I do, you know, I'll just make myself crazy. Don't Um, do that. (laughs) Yeah. So I knew that it would upset some people, but I felt like... People that held him on like a pedestal. Yeah. I feel like people who didn't really read the whole thing could believe or think somehow that I was trying to take him down or that I was ungrateful. And I felt like I tried to be very careful and not do that. I thought you were very fair. You put the time in. You did the research. It wasn't (laughs) like you just wrote this opinion piece. I thought it was incredibly thorough. Thank you. And quite honestly, I didn't even include some of the worst pieces that he wrote. There were some that were just shocking. I never read National Lampoon at the time. Like, I wasn't the audience for it. And so, so many of those pieces just kind of went away, except now, of course, with the internet, you can read everything. Mm-hmm. So a lot of those pieces I was reading for the first time. I remember I had read one piece that he wrote called My Vagina. He wrote these two companion pieces, one My about penis. Him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, you know, a man wakes up with a vagina and it gets so dark and I guess it's satirical, but there's just something that's I don't know. I don't think I realized quite how dark it was. I idolized him at the time. So 
you know, it was pretty much like he could do no wrong in my eyes. But I remember when I mentioned that I had read that piece, he, I mean, he got so embarrassed. I'm sure. And I know that writing for National Lampoon wasn't a very happy time for him. So I don't think he was necessarily proud of the work that he did there. I'm not saying this specifically about John Hughes, because I think that it's probably true of a lot of people. But writing comedy doesn't give you the permission to say horrific, hateful things. Yeah. Let's get back to you as an actor in your teens. And I know mm-hmm. you probably talked about this ad nauseum. I hate to bring you back there, but I need to go. Is that okay? Go ahead. Okay. So did you know what you were really leading when you were in it, when you were acting? Because you were in ninth grade when you filmed Sixteen Candles, right? Yeah. Well, I was between ninth and tenth grade. So we filmed it during the summer. And no, I had no idea. You know, I was an actress. I, I loved acting and singing. But at that time, I think I was more passionate about acting. I was just trucking along. <laughs> and I never really imagined that those films were going to explode in the way that they did and that I would become whatever you want to call me. I didn't imagine that at the time. I just call you great. <laughs> I'll <laughs> and take amazing. it. Does your husband, does he have the same kind of romantic connection to the sort of mark that you made in Hollywood at that point? Well... My husband is seven years younger than I am. and Did he miss the Molly Ringwald boat? <laughs> kind of. I mean, his big association with seeing me on screen was 16 Candles. He said his family went to go see it at the drive-in because he, mm-hmm. he was first-generation American. His parents were Greek. And at the time, his he has an older sister who's closer to my age. And at the time, she was sort of having trouble sneaking out, doing stuff that teenagers do. And I think uh, Ponio was probably around 10 or something. And he said that his dad freaked out in the middle of the movie and said, is this what teenagers do? Is this what teenagers do? (laughs) And 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 he's like, I don't know. And just sort of ended up leaving the movie. So he never actually saw the rest of Sixteen Candles (laughs) until we got together. So that was his big um, experience with seeing me on screen. It's probably better. But one thing that you've said in the past is that there was no other depiction of the minutia of high school and just the things that happen that aren't these grand events. They're small, but they you feel them so deeply when yeah. you're in high school. I just remember seeing 16 Candles when I was young, and it just, my head exploded. I think it made me want to be a writer because I think that, I'm sure it made a lot of people want to get into film too because it was so genre-defying at the time. It made teenagers like me seem sophisticated. I mean, the dialogue was smart. Even though the kids in, in Sixteen Candles seemed much richer than me, there's something about it that you can still see creative references from that movie and from Breakfast Club mm-hmm. um, and from St. Elmo's Fire and like the, all the great movies from that era tracking through to today. Yeah, I think that is what made those movies special. Up until those movies, I mean, every part that I had gone out for was to play someone's daughter. There was just nothing where my character was moving the story along until those movies. I really, I can't stress enough how unique that was. And also how much he sort of got me. Because I felt like, you know, when I read them, I felt like they were written for me. It was written for you, wasn't it? Breakfast Club was not written for me at all. He was going to do that locally, you know, small budget in Chicago. And then over July 4th weekend, he said that he found my picture in a stack of headshots yeah, yeah, and taped it above his um, workstation and then wrote 16 Candles and then sent it into the studio 
And they loved that. They fell in love with that and decided that they wanted to do that first. And then out of that, he cast me and Anthony Michael Hall for The Breakfast Club. And then Pretty in Pink was actually written for me. It was, it was after he already knew me. So that one, I can actually say, was written for me. But I almost didn't do it. Pretty in Pink? Yeah. Yeah, because John and I kind of had a falling out at the end of The Breakfast Club. Um, Why? And then he decided it was complicated I'll write about that one day. Okay. <laughs> but he decided that he wasn't going to direct Pretty in Pink, which it was always his plan, and then decided that um, Jennifer Beals was going to do it. And then um, Howie Deutsch, who actually directed it, said, no, I really think that this should be Molly. And anyway, it ended up being me. I think Jennifer Beals is great, but I cannot imagine her making her own dress. <laughs> I can't see her sewing together her two dresses together. I, I just think can't it see probably it I think I, it probably would have looked a lot better than the dress that I wore. No. Did you see what no. She did not have well, she had kind of decent style in flash dance, but Yeah, she um, looked great. Well she was too old though. And I feel like that's another reason why Pretty in Pink and the Breakfast Club and Sixty Candles work is because I was the, actually the age of the characters that I was playing, and there's this, there's just a certain authenticity I think that you that just can't be faked. Also, and I, I hate to talk about the superficiality of beauty, but I think that when I saw you, it's like I felt like I could see myself, and I yeah. think it was because you didn't look like Christy Brinkley or yeah. Cheryl Teagues or all the women that were on the cover of magazines yeah. then, and I think that was so profoundly life-changing for me. It was the first time I actually felt like I saw someone that I might know in real life or that I could become. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I grew up with a blonde-haired, blue-eyed sister who, she's my older sister, and so and we shared a room, and so she got to decide what went on the wall. And I remember... <laughs> The looking battle. at you know you know back then you would take these advertisements out of magazines and so it was basically wallpapered with everything that I was not I sort of got that if I couldn't be that then I would be me but I would be even more me so like I had always been so when it comes to your finances you think you've done it all you've saved you've researched and you've invested all that you can now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Conscious about my mouth, so I made my mouth look bigger, wore bright lipstick, and I made my skin paler and made my hair redder, and you know, just everything that I was, I just decided I would be more of that, and you know, and it worked for me. But I do think that that was a really defining part of why those films were so important, especially Pretty in Pink, because I think that those stereotypes around kids that have money and kids that don't have money were so real. They still are. Yeah. And I do remember feeling a certain kinship. And I think it's why these movies are still so beloved, mm. because the references still have so much meaning to people. And the fact that, that Andy didn't have 
the money to go to a fancy store, even though the, all those dresses were really ugly, and um, you know, showed up in a dress that I would wear today. I mean, wouldn't you wear that dress today? Uh, no. Really? No. You drove a Carmen Ghia. You wore single earrings before anybody else. The car was amazing. I loved all my clothes. The only thing that I did not like that much was the dress. Because, I mean, that dress is really hard to pull off. It was like Vetmont before Vetmont, yeah. wasn't it? Can't I mean, you there, see it with there the heel? Is, there's something, yeah, but it's like essentially a very unflattering dress. Well, because it kind of goes down. <laughs> yeah. I remember when you were it's doing the inverted, initial. <laughs> it's an inverted triangle. And it's that really awful Pepto-Bismol pink. It was like pink satin or pink. It and, was, then, and it wasn't even satin. It was like this know, synthetic polyester. It was nasty. Don't knock the dress. The dress was great. And it should be in a museum. Is it, it in a should, museum? It should be. I don't even know where this dress. It, I mean, I kept all of my clothes from that movie except for the dress. That was the only thing. And I wish I had it now. Where's? How come you can't, you can't find the dress anywhere? I don't know. It's probably in a vault somewhere at Paramount. There were like a few of them, you know, because whenever there's something like that, they they always have to do doubles and triples. So I think there's probably about three of those dresses wow. in the world. I mean, they'll show up one day. I hope so. I hope so. Are you like a big closet cleaner? <laughs> oh, God, no. Really? <laughs> no. It was in my notes. I was like, I really? love her. Yes. Where did it clean my closet? Oh, you wrote it about it in your God to life. I did? Yeah, I was trying to remember where. Yeah, oh, I think so. I think that was maybe aspirational. Well, you have a house now. So I think yeah. when you move outside the city, it's like you have all these closets. Yeah, I, I fill every closet. Good. It's like my husband has this little tiny closet <laughs> and I just have racks and racks and racks. But, you know, I have to say every time I get rid of something, I mean, OK, I shouldn't say every time, but very often I get rid of something and I miss it. Like I think about it. You do? I do. Yeah, I oh. do. You should have a you should have a place that you can put it, you know, where it's kind of like the room before it goes to yeah. the Salvation Army the, yeah. or the real real. And just yeah. like if you think about it over the course of like six yeah. months. Yeah. I literally just, I just filled a big bag yesterday of some of my old Matsuda stuff from you know, I know. What are you I've, gonna do with it? I'm gonna donate it. Where? I don't know, wherever they take donations. Uh, you can take it to me. <laughs> <laughs> Aside from acting, you're obviously a prolific writer, but you also translate books from French to English. <laughs> when did you start doing that, and why did you decide to move to France? It wasn't really planned. I went there on a movie, and I, I had been very uninspired at the time living in Hollywood. I just wasn't really happy or inspired by anything that was being offered to me at the time. So my plan was just to go there and do this movie and then come back. But I just fell in love with France. And then eventually I fell in love with the person. But, you know, I had no plans to translate a book. I mean, I never would have thought that I would do something like that. But I had written a piece in Vogue magazine mm -hmm. about living in France. And in, in a lot of ways, I feel like I grew up there. I mean, I obviously I grew up in America, but I feel like I, I came of age came there. Of age there. Yeah. And my 
editor there, Valerie Seicher, um, moved from Vogue to Scribner. The book, Lie With Me, was one of her first books that she acquired. And she was the one that had the idea. And it was only because of her passion and her certitude that I said, okay, well, let me take a look. And then I read a couple chapters. I really liked it. And I thought, well, why not? Let, let me see if I can do this. And it was an incredible experience. I mean, it was so difficult and time consuming. I mean, and it's a pretty small book, but I worked really hard on it. And I'm really glad that I did it. Let's go back to what you just mentioned about coming of age in France. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like it was hard for you to be yourself here in the U.S.? I mean, you must have been recognized all the time. Did people lose their minds when they saw you? I did feel like it was hard. A lot of this I didn't realize at the time. I knew I was unhappy. I knew I was kind of uninspired, but I didn't really attribute it to the fact that I was a celebrity and not necessarily equipped to be a celebrity. It wasn't really my plan to become incredibly famous, incredibly young. It disrupted things. I think some people sort of have this plan to be a celebrity and they're very methodical about it and they really sort of court it and want it and go to all the events and, you know, really thrive. And it's just not exactly my personality type. And so, I mean, I'm basically a pretty introverted person who's made myself be more extroverted just because I, I have to be. But yeah, I sort of felt like I was in my early 20s and in this position where I just felt incredibly uncomfortable. And it was like feeling like I just couldn't breathe. And I didn't feel that way when I was in France. Also, to break out of that image of what people have about you. I think that I think that Hollywood can be very rigid when it comes to sort of you belong in this bucket and you belong in this bucket oh, in yeah. terms of like how they audition, at least from what I know from my experience and talking to other actors. But it can be really difficult for you to get other people to see you in a different way. I became famous when I was really young and there was nobody really who could be paired up with me. And so I found that I was too young for most of the like, parts that I wanted to do. It, it was very strange. Were there any parts that you wanted that you didn't get? That you? Oh, yeah. Fabulous Baker Boys. I really loved that. I mean, Michelle Pfeiffer's yeah. amazing in that. But, you know, I was considered for that. But then I was too young to be mm -hmm. paired up with those men at the time. I'm trying to think of... Jeff Bridges, though. Working Girl, I was considered for, um, for that. I met with Mike Nichols for that. I don't see you with Harrison Ford. Well, he wasn't cast yet. They, oh. they cast the woman first. The, the main it. issue with, with that was I, I was talking to Mike Nichols and he said, you're just so young. A big element of that character is that she feels like her life is it's kind over. of passed her by, yeah. like she's missed her opportunity. And nobody can believe that with you because you're 19 years old. You yeah. have your whole life ahead, ahead of, of you. you. So, I mean, I understood his point, but I mean, I there. So there were all these movies that I felt like I really wanted to do, but I just wasn't I was just too young for a lot of them. And then there was the Jonathan Demi movie, the um, you know, the one that Jodie Foster did. Silence of the Lambs. Sil yes. Silence of the Lambs. Oh, <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, but then again, Jonathan Demi, you know, said, you're you're just too young. I don't mm -hmm. know that anyone will believe that you're. Uh... <laughs> and I was like, but she's a rookie. An investigator. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or she's a detective. Yeah. So I just I, but she is a rookie. And, I'm, and that's what I said. But he said, oh, God, you're just about, you know. Five years too young Interesting. To, to be believable. And so I just so felt like that go kept to happening. But you had to go to France. <laughs> yeah, because I just felt really uninspired. And I didn't realize at the time 
that I could write because, as you pointed out, you do get put in boxes, particularly in Hollywood. And I felt like nobody would take me seriously as a writer. And then eventually I just got old enough to where I just didn't care what other people thought and decided that I was just going to do whatever I wanted to to do. do. I mean, I love the fact that you weren't going to wait around for hearts to open up that worked for you and that you wanted. You know, you made your life happen. And I think that that's awesome. Let's talk about acting now. I watched all these small moments last night, which is such a beautiful movie. And you actually play a mother of two sons and you're kind of struggling in your marriage. Yeah, I really like it. I felt like it was a very authentic portrayal of a mother and somebody who's disappointed in her life and at a crossroads. I played a lot of mother. It's it's really funny how you go from being too young for everything and then all of a sudden every single role that you get is as a mother. <laughs> you know, I feel like I have played a lot of moms, which is okay. But one thing I really liked about that movie in particular was that nobody, you know, Melissa, the director, writer-director, nobody was telling me that I had to be nicer. And you get that note a lot as a mother, like, oh, can you you know, can you be kinder? And can you be can you soften your voice a little bit? Really? Yeah. Oh, my God. You can't you can't believe how many times usually men are giving you that note. Do you know how many people have mean mothers? <laughs> but not just that. I feel like it's, it's, a rea- it's, it's like it's it's not even a matter of being mean. You don't have to be a mean. Pro- <laughs> like, I don't consider myself a mean mom. But there are moments where you're just expressing yourself, expressing yourself. Are you just it's it's too much and you know and and if you're a mom like you know your your kids drive you crazy like it'll it'll happen like you you think a your 10 month old drives you a little crazy sometimes you, Never. you didn't say that every but, moment um, is just bliss yeah i mean it just it it gets more and more and more like as they grow up you just can't believe you know you really have to take it day by day but that's what it's like being in the trenches as a mom and yeah and and getting that note all the time can you can you be a little softer can you be a little nicer can you be a little bit more supportive it drives me crazy so that experience was really positive and i was happy with the way it turned out and then you also starred as the mother in um, The Life of the American Teenager. That's right, yeah. You were Shailene Woodley's mother. That's right. Which preceded the role that you now currently play as a mother in Riverdale. Tell me about what it's been like playing this role and just how it's kind of like impacted your life and your perspective right now. Well, I was sort of coming on just occasionally because Archie's lived with his father and Mary Andrews, my character, lived in Chicago and would sort of commute back and forth to see her son. And of course, that all changed um, when Luke Perry died. So it's been really... Were you really, close with him? Yeah. I'm sorry. Like he was the person that every time I flew into Vancouver, I would get a text from him, you know, are you here? You here yet? <laughs> Where are we having dinner? You know, we would. That's um, so nice. Yeah, he was my touchstone there. He was the person I saw all the time. And most of my scenes were with either Luke or and with di- KJ. And didn't he adopt a dog from you? Is that true? Um, a pig. I was like, I know, you, I know he adopted something from you. Yeah, I got a pig when I was, before I moved to Paris. And then. You were taking care of a pig before it was chic. <laughs> yeah, it was supposed to be a little tiny Vietnamese pot belly pig. And then it grew as big as this table. Really? Yeah. And what did you do with it? Well, apparently my friend Esty said that Luke had a farm and he had pigs. And so he took the pig. But then my 
father told me that that wasn't true, that somebody came from Van Nuys and picked up the pig and gave him a hundred bucks. I don't know. <laughs> I think my father's mistaken. I like to believe that, uh, that Luke took the pig, but I'm not, I'm not sure. We don't really have any idea where the pig is. No. <laughs> okay. But so now that you're a regular character, what do you think is special about this role? I think it's just a really interesting show and it's an interesting take on the Archie comics and it's interesting to me what a chord it struck with so many people and not just kids. That's the thing that surprises it's me. It's like a is, darker soap opera. Yeah, is how people just binge watch it and they're just obsessed with it. It's a fun project to be a part of. So what do you think is unique and important about your character this season? It's hard to know exactly what's going on with the show because we don't find out. I mean, I know what happens in like the first five episodes, which, you know, I'm not really allowed to say. But the the first episode deals with Luke's death. You know, the first episode is really a tribute to him. And then everything continues in Riverdale fashion mm-hmm. you know, with the from there. But I can say that the first episode I think is going to be really, um, I haven't seen it yet, but I think it's going to be very moving and a very nice tribute to him. Oh, good. That's amazing. We were talking a little bit offline about just our roads to becoming parents. And you were telling me a little bit about your experience. What does it mean to you to be a mother right now, especially during this intense climate that we're sort of operating in? I feel like it's something that you can only really do day by day, if you think too far ahead about this world that that we're living in, you know, you can get depressed or anxious. So I, I just try to instill the best values in my kids that I can and also sort of live by example. You know, I feel like all of my kids are feminists, and, you know, including my son. And, you know, hopefully they will be politically active. Because I really do think that this next generation of voters is going to make a huge difference. It has to. I mean, that's the only way that I think things are going to be able to change is if all of the kids that can vote for the first time this year actually show up and vote. It's interesting how how crucial the roles that they're playing, especially with the environment and sustainability and just, you know, conservation and how how those have already become such important issues for, for younger kids because... They know that, you know, so much of the burden is going to be on them. Yeah. And the only way that anything is going to change is if they show up and vote. I mean, I can't tell you how frustrating it was in this last election. I would talk to people, you know, millennials, a couple that I'm thinking about, and they would say things like, oh, well, I don't really like anyone, so I'm just not going to vote. And it it made me crazy. I would get r- very uh, heated, and you know, and and Matilda would say, "Stop it! You're making things awkward, mom." You know, but I feel like it's so important for kids that every kid—I shouldn't say kid—but every person who is going to be able to vote this time actually show up and vote, and that's the only way that things are going to get better. Do you know what a privilege it is to be in a democracy and to have an option to vote and to actually have a say and to contribute, even though sometimes it doesn't feel like it matters? It does matter. It absolutely matters. It profoundly matters. And I think Republicans are afraid of that. I feel like they know that the younger generation is not going to stand for this world that they've been creating for years, you know, with gerrymandering and you know, I mean, our Supreme Court now, I mean, if they are able to continue unchecked like this, we're just, we're completely fucked. 
And so everyone that's listening to this, if you get to a vote in the next election, please show up and vote. Yes, ditto. Molly Ringwald, it has been such a pleasure to have you on Unstyled today. I love talking to you. I'm so grateful to you for everything that you've brought to our lives and, and just the contribution that you've made to film is is really enormous. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. hope you're inspired after hearing Molly's story. For even more unstyled extras, check out Refinery29 or my Instagram at Christine Barbrick. You can also join the conversation using the hashtag unstyled across your social media. And of course, we'd be infinitely grateful if you'd please subscribe to Unstyled on Apple Podcasts and rate us while you're there. You can head over to refinery29.com to find this episode and more. And make sure to sign up for our exclusive Unstyled newsletter delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our show today was produced by Rebecca Easley, with production assistance by Kate Spencer. Unstyled was edited by Priscilla Mena and Anna Costanza, and our writer is Kelsey Miller. Our theme music today is by the artist Koff, and we recorded Unstyled with Paul Ruist at Argo Studios and Gotham Podcast Studios. We'll see you back here next Monday for a conversation with Kate Spade's senior director of brand creative, Elizabeth Olson, on the real role of personal style. See you then. 